I am not going to start a war among people in the housing industry. Uh, what I will say, though, is just from what I hear from builders is I feel like um, home builders learned a lot during the Great Recession. And they, more than any other segment, I, well, obviously the financials sector, but they learned a lot. And so, for example, we're seeing them take more measured approaches to price cuts. They're being much more conservative and pulling back on building because they got caught up in overbuilding last time. So, and then frankly, the industry consolidated quite a bit. So you've got a lot of big players and fewer sort of local uh, mom and pop builders on the ground who are reacting to, like you say, this national news when really maybe what they should be paying attention to is what's going on at the local level. Today's episode of Housing News is a perfect representation of our vision and mission at HW Media, and that's to cover all things housing. Today's interview is with Lisa Sturdivant, the chief economist of Bright MLS. And in this podcast conversation, our housing news conversation, we cover everything from economic data to innovations in mortgage lending and valuation, trends in the real estate brokerage industry, local market data in the mid-Atlantic where Bright specializes, but also some national trends that impact the housing news audience from, from coast to coast. We even end the episode talking about 3D printed homes and some of the, the innovations that might bring more inventory to market down the road. This is really a wide-reaching conversation. But the reason you'll tune in and stay for the whole episode is Lisa does provide her predictions for 2023, her early 2023 forecast. This will be one of like the first transaction and interest rate and home price forecasts you hear for next year. So I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you get any value out of it, I'm going to prompt you right now to go into iTunes and rate the show and leave a comment. I really do appreciate the feedback. It helps us make housing news better for you. Thanks a lot and enjoy the episode. Lisa, I'm lucky I get to see you uh, twice in a, in a two-month period. I got to see you in Scottsdale just um, six or seven weeks ago for HWA. Yeah, it was great. It was great to be there. Um, Clayton, I never had a chance to uh, to be there my first time and had just a great time. So thanks for the invitation to join you guys out there in Scottsdale. Well, it's only our second time hosting the event in in person. So like we're, uh, you know, we're four or five years into hosting in-person events, but for HWA, which we think is going to be like our our big event franchise that brings the, the housing sector together, um, only our second time doing it in person. So you're like, you're pretty much like, like OG, like founding speaker kind of category at this stage. Right in at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lisa, at HWA and through other content that you've uh, taken part in, in the last uh, last few months, there's been a lot happening in the housing economy. So I'm excited to dig into some of the, the economic data that you follow and research and, and speak to. But I want to kind of kick off with a little bit about your role as chief economist at Bright MLS and like being a chief economist at one of the largest MLSs in the country, the access to data that you have has to be incredibly fascinating. So kick us off. Tell us about, tell us about Bright and uh, what the organization is. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah. So Bright MLS, as you mentioned, one of the largest multiple listing services in the country. We cover um, six states and the District of Columbia. So the East, sort of the, along the East Coast uh, have about 100,000 subscribers um, and um, sort of the place that we get information on all the transactions that take place um, in the mid-Atlantic market, um, the opportunity to really dig into a lot of data, not only on 
you know, sales and prices and inventory, which we really track very closely as we look at the housing market, but a lot of information on all those activities that happen before a sale. So we have data on showings, we have data on views, and so we can kind of get a picture um, of what might be coming ahead in terms of the housing market based on all that pre-listing activity, and which, as you know, it's, it's impossible right now to be looking backwards to be able to talk about where we might be headed because, look, last month is doesn't have anything to do with where next month's going to be in terms of where we are in the housing market. So just this opportunity to work um, you know, with this MLS, with the data that are provided by our broker and agent members, and to really be able to analyze um, housing market conditions and try and get a better sense of, of where we're going. Really, the goal is to support our industry and to provide information to make sense of what's going on in the market. Um, and I get a chance to do that every day. Yeah, see, so my vantage point of MLS is you stand at a, a really unique place in the ecosystem where you're you're serving agents and, and brokers with information that you can gather through the the listings and all the data that you that you capture. Um, you're enabling them to to market their properties and actually sell sell homes and providing a service to consumers by making listings accessible. But all at the same time, you're you're capturing a, a data set that just is unique, and especially in a market that's moving as quickly as this one, um, some traditional indices like Case Shiller are, are less relevant because they're, they're, they're lagging by so much. And you're seeing listing information and more of a real-time view. How do you activate that, that real-time view of the market into intelligence for Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. And it's, it's, I love the way you described it because that's the way I think about it too. It's actually, it's this, it's this um, uh, give and take situation we have with our with our agents and brokers, right? Uh, it is their listing data, right? That when they go in and enter this information into the into the MLS, uh, they are providing information so that in this cooperative landscape, other agents can have access to that information to share with their prospective buyers. Um, and then we are able to take that information and analyze it and. Um, bring a little bit of uh, assessment to it and then put, give it back to them and say, here's what we're seeing and here's how we can offer you resources so you can be um, a, a source of information for your clients and for your customers and your colleagues and, and frankly, even for your community. And one of the things that we have done is to take a lot of that data um, that I mentioned that's sort of this pre-sales kind of activities um, about showings and agent views, uh, new listings, new pendings. And we've constructed something called the Home Demand Index. We've worked with T3 to produce this Home Demand Index, which provides this sort of um, look uh, at what's going on in the market to help us uh, be a little bit more forward looking. And so when we look at where this Home Demand Index is going, we have a picture of what the market might look like in four weeks, six weeks, eight, eight weeks out, which gives us a little bit of a leg up. As you mentioned, some of the other indices, um, Case Shiller in particular, is um, is helpful for its historic trend. But when the market is changing so quickly, right, having data from two, sometimes even three months back, um, really tells us very little about what the current market is on the ground. And we really need that sort of just-in-time data. How do you like communicate the data back to agents? Do you see do you see agents and brokers hungry for the information and going to hunt it down, or is there like a more of a push where you need to like say, hey, this is important, this is important because, and this is how you use it? I am constantly surprised at the appetite for data from real estate agents. 
Like, I'll be honest with you. I've been working in this business for a long time. Prior to Bright, I was the chief economist at Virginia Realtors. And then before that, I worked for a long time at, at George Mason University, where I spoke with a lot of realtor groups. And the and folks working this injury, they're hungry for this data, right? And there's really no shortage of data out there. And so I think that the the value add that we're bringing is to kind of help folks know how to use it, right? How to use the information. And so uh, we put out, you know, regular reports. We have our home demand index. It has this sort of interactive function that people can go out and look at. Um, but I do think that instead of just handing reports out or putting out PDFs or, you know, sort of just pointing people to a, a, an Excel spreadsheet, I think that what we're really trying to do is to help people understand what is the most important thing that you need to know. Um, what is it that is the key takeaway from all of this data that you're seeing? And frankly, how do you sort of sift through all of the um, the headlines that we see in the media to figure out what's the most important thing? And so whether that's through blogs or little videos, um, you know, we sort of are trying to meet people in lots of different ways. I don't know about you, Clay, but I hate watching videos on um, like on LinkedIn or on um, Facebook. But there's some people who love those three minute videos, right? Um, people who don't want to read a blog, but they might read a tweet, right? So you have to kind of catch people where they are uh, and help uh, get the information to them. Everybody has their platform, but I, I'm officially off Facebook. I uh, I feel I made the move this month, so uh, I'm focusing my content consumption efforts elsewhere. But uh, yeah, no, I, I I I hear you, and I think depending on like the flow of your your work and where you consume content, like different formats work better. And like, I'm a big multitasker. So like watching video doesn't always work for me because I might be like on a zoom call or doing something else at the same time or like, or like late at night, I don't want to like keep the rest of the family awake by listening to something. Um, uh, and I don't have AirPods handy, but like, sometimes it's great to read other times. It's great to, um, to listen. Sometimes it's great to watch. So yeah, you kind of have to find the audience in the format that, that works for them. And, uh, we know that Real estate professionals are not always the ones that are glued to a uh, a multi screen desktop and like they're they're mobile and uh, so formats that match the the mobile workflow are I think are very important. Yeah, and I do think that you know because because in my position I get a chance not only to look at a lot of data but I get a chance actually to talk one on one with brokers and agents who are working on the ground every day, right? So I give a bunch of webinars. I go out and do a lot of virtual presentations, in-person presentations. So I get a chance to hear what people are seeing on the ground. And I think that's super valuable because we can pivot and say, you know, people are really looking now at, you know, contracts being pulled. Can you guys start tracking data on, you know, what the trends are in that? Well, we didn't, we didn't really pay attention to that during the pandemic because stuff was flying off the shelves and going to, you know, going to closing within, uh, you know, five days. And now, we're seeing uh, listings being withdrawn. We're seeing contracts that are um, being are, are falling through, and so we hear that from our brokers and our agents, and we can say, "Ah, oh, well, let's tap into the data and see what we can what we can tell about where that might be happening, some of the reasons that it might be happening, and then what we might be able to expect um, going forward." So, this idea of being able to talk with realtors uh, and brokers themselves and find out what they need to know. You know, our job is to, my job, I think, is to empower basically any real estate agent who wants to be like their own little personal economist for their clients, right? What can I do to help you be the resource uh, in your local, in your local market? 
Yeah. I mean, I think you play a role that's really similar to the role that I think housing wire and real trends play. Like we're like our strategy is communicating to the housing professionals so they can in turn be the source of information for their borrowers and referral sources and, and, and home buyers. And uh, it's a really similar like capacity that you run in where you aren't the face out there communicating directly with the homeowner homeowners and consumers, but you should empower the agents and brokers that are, that are part of the MLS. Um, no, absolutely. Yeah. And they just like the, the, uh, so the people in your, in your network and housing wires network, there's so much information out there. And frankly, so many headlines out there that, you know, perspective, you know, people going to get a loan or people shopping for a lender, or they're seeing all these headlines and they're coming with sometimes with misconceptions about what the market really is. And so uh, again, this idea of dispelling myths and in, in my case, like sort of bringing the data down to the very local level, because frankly, the national house, there is no national housing market, right? <laughs> and so knowing what's going on at the local level ends up being so important, particularly in this, in this time in the market. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. So let's 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 go into the the market and talk a little about some of like the local dynamics that you're seeing and maybe and maybe how they contrast nationally. And um at Housing Wire Annual, in a conversation that honestly was pretty nationally focused, you, you expressed that you expect to see some near-term price corrections on on homes. How are you seeing that play out? Let's start in the in the the broader region, the Mid Atlantic region that you cover most specifically, or or even specific markets inside of the Mid Atlantic area. Yeah, so I think that you know as mortgage rates rose and we had seen home prices rising at double digit rates, I mean it is not surprising to think that home prices would have to fall from their peak levels. And add on top of that is actually we see home prices fall from their peak levels. Uh, due to seasonal factors anyway, right? Home prices always peak in the summer and they tend to dip in the the winter. So if you want to buy a house at the best price in a typical market, wait till like November or December, (laughs) because that's when home prices are lowest. So we've already seen a fall from the peak, right, in our market. And that is part of a seasonal pattern. But we will expect uh, prices to come down even further as, you know, higher mortgage rates have really, um, you know, uh, eaten into buyers' purchasing power, and um, we've seen that in some of our local markets in the Mid Atlantic, um, though not to the same extent in some other um, in some other markets. I was telling someone today um, we are sort of a plain vanilla market here in the Mid Atlantic, and you know this is the time where you don't want to be some fancy pistachio sherbet with you know a cherry on top market. Being plain vanilla is actually a pretty good place to be as we're going through this this transitioning market. And um, so we have seen prices come down um, from their peak in some places that ran up uh, the fastest. And you can imagine places like um, vacation and second home markets, right? Places in the exurban communities, those so-called Zoom towns where there was a big demand and that has pulled back. Those are the places where prices are beginning to reset but um, in, in most of the sort of core metro markets, Philly, Baltimore, D.C., and the Mid-Atlantic, still seeing uh, stable prices. In fact, still seeing year-over-year price, price growth um, through the end of October. So how do you, do you look at demographics for the markets that you, you cover as well? And I, I, there's been so much talk in recent years about demographic waves and the flight to um, kind of the, the sun states and the, the, or the sand states, as we called them in the last cycle. Um, how, how is the, what do the demographic trends look like in some of these vanilla markets and the, the DC, Philly, Baltimore areas that you speak of? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, no um, disrespect to my vanilla housing markets. They're definitely like, it's my home. I've lived, I've lived here for 30 years now at this point. Um, and we are seeing though that the demographics are having sort of an outsized um, impact on the housing market. As you know, and everyone listening knows, you know, millennials are in the first time homebuyer age. They are this really large demographic cohort and they came uh, out of school basically during the worst recession in 75 years, during the Great Recession. They are coming into their time of getting married, having kids, buying a house in uh, the, one of the oddest markets ever. Um, and they are making decisions in a way that will affect housing markets um, you know, across the country, right? There is a greater sense of being able to work remotely and to be able to work um, from uh, places that are very far away from the office. Uh, we are also seeing, though, that as millennials get married and have kids, they want the same things that us Gen Xers and baby boomers wanted. They want a little bit of a yard. They want a little bit of space. Um, and so it's been um, and then they come and find themselves in a market where the in inventory is really, really limited. So I guess that all that is to say is that link between work and home has been disrupted a little bit. And um, and so we will see in our market anyway, even as job growth is strong, we might see the housing markets do better in some of the further out places. Um, and as people can um, move uh, to different places, affordability is going to become kind of front of mind. It used to be you look for commuting, you look for schools, you look for all those other things. And now the question is going to be, look, I can go anywhere. Where do I get the the, the best house, the best neighborhood, the best quality of life for my money. And uh, and it may be in some of these markets where um, affordability is still um, you know, relatively low, thinking of the Minneapolis's, the Cleveland's, the Indianapolis's, you know, those kinds of places where you didn't see those big run-ups in prices. So I think that in some ways um, we might see a little bit of an evening out. Um, so these coastal markets might begin to see some of the edge – being taken off of the demand um, so that price growth would start to slow down a little bit um, when people are sort of striving for more affordable, you know, more, more affordable locations. How, how should real estate brokerages adjust their, their strategy to match that potentially broader net that home buyers are, are casting where um, in a lot in, in past years, being a specialist and like being the, the most productive agent in Alexandria would be like the best thing possible for you. But now you have a buyer who might be in Alexandria or they might be like you who looked in Maryland. And how do you, how do you serve buyers who are casting a broader net who might even jump to Cleveland if they find the right, um, the right home in the right school district? How do brokers adjust for that? Right. I think, you know, you, it's a really good question. I think you kind of have to do both and, right? Because I think there is something super valuable about being an expert in your local market, right? And I do think that for people who are um, looking in particular markets, having their realtor be um, very, very knowledgeable about the community is, you. I mean, you can't beat that that knowledge and that expertise. You kind of would rather be a special uh, a specialist as opposed to, you know, a generalist. But what you do need to do and what frankly realtors are very good at doing is uh, maintain your connections and sort of be able to uh, connect your clients with people all over, 
you know, all over the country, frankly, um, we found in our um, bright MLS footprint that the movement of people up and down the I-95 corridor actually is way more extensive than anybody thought, right? So this idea of being able to connect um, listings all the way from New England down to Florida is actually really beneficial to buyers and sellers because that's where people are moving. It's not, you know, our MLS has a boundary, but it's not like people stop at the boundary and they say, well, I'm not going to look for houses outside that boundary because it's, you know, they're going to be looking um, uh, elsewhere. And this idea of being able to share um, listing data across wider networks is really the way to best serve consumers because we know that people are moving um, in, in patterns that may be a little bit different than they, they were before. I think in an optimal world, consumers never have to think about the boundaries of a multiple listing service. But do, does this broader um, net encourage or create opportunities for MLSs to to partner, share data? Like, I don't know. What does that dynamic look like between MLSs? And if I understand it correctly, there's like 360 MLSs across the country. So they're like, there's a, it's a pretty big population of potential partners. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and those MLSs range from very small, uh, very small footprints, very small, um, groups of, of realtors tied to local realtor associations to large regional groups like, uh, California, uh, MLS and, and Bright. And, um, I do think that the future though is really, um, you know, these partnerships and the ability to share listings data across, uh, all of these MLSs, because as you point out, um, you know, the customer, the consumer wants a seamless, you know, uh, experience. And frankly, when they go on any of the portals right now to look for homes, they're not thinking, oh, this listing came from Bright and this listing came from Central Virginia MLS or, you know, they all they know is, look, I'm looking to buy a home and I want to make sure that I'm seeing all of the homes that are available to sit uh for sale. And so the extent to which um, these the partnerships can allow for data sharing will a- allow our realtors, frankly, to be a bet- uh, you know, better resource, an even better resource for, for these buyers and sellers. And particularly, I think, in this very low inventory environment, you know, as a buyer, or uh, I certainly, I want to make sure that I'm seeing all of the homes that are available for sale. And if there's some that are being held off and maybe marketed internally within brokerages that that feels like a um, a bad thing for consumers because it's you know sort of keeping things off the market and um, and keeping information sort of held by certain you know by certain parties uh, and other people are disadvantaged let's go deeper on the topic of inventory and over the last two years as we saw the housing market moving so incredibly quickly, we were in most markets in the US in a severe um, inventory drought constrained by inventory. And over the last, I don't even know what the timeline is, six months or so, as we've seen interest rates come up and home price appreciation start to press against the boundaries of affordability, um, it seems like many markets across the US are seeing a rapid increase in inventory. Can you speak to the data that, that you're seeing and the trends that you're seeing in inventory in Bright and at a national level? Sure. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. We have seen inventory increase. And in some places you can see inventory has more than doubled, like a Phoenix, for example, we've seen inventory more than double over the year. But, and I will say a very big, but (laughs) we had years of, of year over year declines in active listings. And in most places, the number of active listings is still less than half of what it was prior than the 
you know, the pandemic. Um, we here in the Mid-Atlantic, we have less than two months of supply across the whole region. There are still some localities in our footprint where we're measuring inventory in terms of weeks of supply or days of supply instead of months. So while inventory is expanding um, compared to where we've been, uh, the baseline was so low that we're still in a market that I think by almost any measure could still be characterized as uh, not a balanced market, right? So usually we think of between five and six months of supply as being a balanced housing market. Um, and months of supply is just, you know, calculated as how long would it take at the normal pace of sales to draw down all the inventory on the market? Five or six months has typically been the balanced market. We are not even close to that yet. Um, and so uh, I think that uh, when things change as quickly as they have, and when our um, baseline is so dramatically low, um, any increase makes it sound like there's a big um, you know, surge of inventory, but we're actually still very low. The reason why I'm taking so much time to say all of this is because back in 2008, one of the reasons why we saw a big crash in home prices was because there was a flood of inventory coming on the market by way of foreclosures, short sales, and really overbuilding on the new construction side. This is not that. So even if you're seeing a 100% increase in inventory, it is going from you know six weeks of supply to 12 weeks of supply. It's not going to, uh, to any sort of oversupply situation at this point. This is not that. That is perfect. This so, is not that. <laughs> so when we talk about a, a multi-year or multi-decade uh, trend, downward trend in inventory, there's a very correlated uh, metric, which is the multi-decade downward trend in days on market. And it seems like homes are are selling faster. Um, do you think that some of the, the technology, business practices, mortgage financing advancements that have helped homes be discovered and closed faster is having an impact on what we should expect as new normals for days on market and inventory? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I, I'll be honest, I haven't really thought about it like that. But yeah, over the last few years, we've been seeing uh, more efficiencies right in the market with the introduction of new technology and innovative practices. You can sort of move through the home sale transaction process more efficiently, maybe more quickly. Honestly, over the last couple of years, though, the reason why we've seen that, that days on market decline so fast is because uh, of the sort of frenetic pace of the market. And I don't, I don't think that's good for the market, right? Like, I don't think that you have to make an offer in the driveway before you leave the open house kind of thing is, is good for the market. Um, I think that anything that can improve the experience for buyers and sellers by making the process easier and more efficient uh, as I mentioned to you, I just bought a home and um, people, we don't do it very often, right? And so it feels overwhelming, uh, even to folks like myself who are sort of know a little bit about this industry, it can still feel overwhelming. And so if there are ways to make the process easier, I think that will um, keep the market really efficient. But I'm not so sure we want to be eager for homes to fly off the market, right? I think what we want is if buyers are making what is arguably the biggest financial decision of their lives, I think it, it should be okay to take a week or two or three. And I do think that what we saw during the pandemic was buyers could not ask for home inspections. They could not ask for appraisals. They were competing against people who were making offers sight unseen and offering $100,000 more than the home was listed at. And um, 
you know, that's not a healthy housing market. And frankly, those run-ups in prices and that the quickness with which buyers had to act, that wasn't good for buyers. And it wasn't good for sellers either, because um, at the time, the seller might get a really great price, but um, but we are we need to make sure there are buyers available coming up behind um, and um, and we need them to be able to feel comfortable with the decision that they're making and not feel like they had some buyer's remorse after the fact. We're going to take a quick break from this episode of Housing News to bring some attention to a recent webinar hosted by the CNBA and focused on recent Fannie Mae calibrations and trends. Featuring Kristen Broadley, QC Allies Chief Innovation Officer, and Bill Cleary, Vice President at Fannie Mae. The big takeaways from this conversation included that Fannie Mae is reporting that multiple COVID-related policy changes, coupled with record high origination volumes last year, led to an uptick in the defect rate for the 2021 vintage. Top defects in the first half of 2022 included rental income, base income, and liability calculation errors. Looking forward, Fannie Mae is focused on the power of pre-funding QC to manage risk. Both panelists talked about maximizing market opportunities through the power of pre-funding QC. If you missed this webinar and want to check it out, the CMBA has posted it to their website and we'll drop a link in the show notes. When you talk to innovators in the real estate tech and, and mortgage technology ecosystems, there is a North Star of like an instant transaction. And uh, like it, I hear it like time and time again. And I, I think about like some of the innovation that's happening in the appraisal and valuation space. And there's there's going to be very accurate instant appraisals very soon. And um, the appraisal has been a one of the one of the steps in the home financing or home purchase process that actually does slow it down quite a bit. In in 2020 and 2021, it was the bottleneck for for everything. And um I'm as you see some of the innovation that's happening in the technology landscape, um, and then the speed of discoverability with like with MLSs like like Bright and all the aggregators like doing their job and getting listings up immediately. And I think home buyers and searchers like using 24 hour, seven day screens to like look at the most recent listings. And, um, you know, once something's been on the, the MLS for 14, 30, 45 days, um, some of your like some it stops being seen in some people's screens. So I do, um, I agree with you in a home purchase process. I mean, I liked the 30 day financing period. It gives you right? a minute to like. To- <laughs> it does. And because, you know, it's interesting you say that about the North Star being instantaneous. And I think that we've gotten to the point now um, where like we're, we've gotten used to Amazon or eBay or whatever, right? And you see it online, you click on it, and it shows up at your doorstep that afternoon. Um, and I think that. There are many people who think that's how the housing industry should work, right? We should be able to buy a house like we buy, you know, um, a, you know, a sort of reorder diapers or whatever. And it, it's just, it, in my opinion, it shouldn't act. It shouldn't happen that way. And as much as we can um, use technology to make things more efficient, I also think there have to be, um, we have to be take, uh, we have to be very careful how much faith we put into 
artificial intelligence and technology. And you mentioned uh, valuation. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I do think there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening in some of these automated valuation models where we can sort of do a little bit better at predicting um, what a home is worth. But we have seen, for example, with Zillow and with others, where those models can really create a lot of havoc. And the and I get back to what I said before. It's not, it doesn't feel high tech. It doesn't feel sexy. But that realtor on the ground, they know whether that price you just got spit out from that model reflects the fact that there's, you know, uh, a 7-Eleven that's, you know, just moving in on the corner or that the, you know, the school's going to go under a big transformation or this or that. And um, I think that we should embrace technology if it improves the experience for consumers and for folks in the real estate industry. But I don't think we should give ourselves over to it. I think there's a real need for human intervention and human, you know, sort of activity in this. And you're not you're not suggesting that. No, I no, I 100% agree. And I think that that actually is one of the things that's changed in the last decade is the the innovators and the the the, the investors who are flooding capital into real estate and prop tech innovation um, aren't as much looking to replace like the frontline. Um, uh, loan originators and real estate agents as much as like, you know, past generations of innovators may have, but more so enabling them to be, to be more efficient. And, uh, efficiency is, is brutal. I, I, the most recent mortgage bankers association IMB report showed that the average, um, independent mortgage bank lost $634 per loan in Q3. It's over $11,000 in origination costs for, for each loan, which in an era where there has been a lot of tech investment and in, in, in efficiency, that's, you know, a little bit scary that like cost to originate keeps shooting up so much, but innovation in the valuation world is actually one thing that can bring that down substantially. Cause if you do an AVM before you begin like the processing and underwriting process, originators cannot work on the loans that aren't going to appraise out. And like, like that, that, that fear of like not appraising out at the finish line kind of like comes off the table, which I think is, which is, which is good for everybody. Um, yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. And I do, I do think though, it's, it's important to particularly, I feel like we, um, it is very challenging to uh, value real estate in a changing market, right? We all know that, right? And so I guess the thing that I would say is we've seen that when um, you sort of use these models to try and predict home values, as soon as you overlay data from the MLS on listing and on sales, you improve those models tremendously. So the idea of bringing together all available information, I think is going to be really helpful and um, to sort of set the the sort of baseline kind of valuation um, that can help with those, you know, those decisions you just mentioned, make, make those move a little bit more, more uh, smoothly. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the, the number of inputs, I mean, they're not just like property level inputs. These are economic inputs. And like, so let's bring us to like the, the next topic that I hope to talk about was, was mortgage interest rates. So second week in November, very, very recently, we saw a pretty positive print and CPI data. Um, positive in the fact that, um, the growth rate had slowed, still, still pretty high, uh, inflation. Like it was like seven and a half percent over, over prior year. But, um, but something that the industry digested positively and mortgage interest rates, um, responded positively. I know this is an area that you've paid very close attention to. So give us some context on that CPI read and, and how it played out in interest rates, uh, in the market. Clayton, can I just tell you if that, if that inflation number had come in over 8%, this whole, like, there would have been so much angst in the 
So I think that there's a lot of psychology in the fact that it came in under 8%, right? So 7.7% inflation, uh, that is not a that is not where we want to be, but is definitely down from this 40-year highs that we've been experiencing over the last few months. And I think what it did was it gave the market some um, hope that perhaps the Federal Reserve was going to begin to ease up on its interest rate hikes, right? There is little doubt that they're going to raise the federal funds rate again this month, next month, and then likely as we head into um, into January. There have been all sorts of signs from uh, Chairman Powell that um, they do not want to ease off on, you know, sort of the, their efforts too soon. Um, and so, but but if we can count on perhaps less aggressive rate hikes, then as you saw, as you pointed out, um, we saw an immediate reaction in the form of lower mortgage rates and a drop in the 10-year uh, treasury yield. I expect that there's going to be a bunch of volatility, right? I mean, you can't imagine, we know that mortgage rates went up so quickly, there is no way they're going to come down nearly as quickly, right? It's going to be a bumpy, bumpy road. And, you know, what I've been seeing is that, you know, buyers, we saw in our data that we, we track home sales on a weekly level. We saw a little uptick in new pending contracts last week, right? People saw six and a half percent, get me in, right? And I think we're going to see some of that. Well, I think there's some fear now that if rates do come down, that home prices will keep going up. And I, I think that's like a consumer mentality. And as corny as it is, like the marry the house, date the rate thesis, I think is something that's in people's heads. And like there might actually be opportune buying um, in a period where rates are higher than people anticipate them to be in 12 months. No, I can see that. And I, you know, I, um, I think that we're seeing sort of a, a tale of two buyers though, right? So if you're a buyer who's rolling equity into a purchase, sure, date the rate if you want, throw some money at the at the loan. But if I worry about it with folks who are first time buyers who might be putting 3% down coming in with that date the rate, marry the house mentality, because um, you know, when it does come time to refinance, you know, they're holding out hope that that home appraises for what they want to refinance at. And we don't want people to be getting into situations that, you know, they can't, they can't manage. But I do think you're right. There are some people who are going to see um, this period of transition as an opportunity, right? The people who are able to, to sort of roll their, roll their money into that, that next purchase. Yeah, you're exactly right on kind of the tale of two buyers. A lot of the originators I've talked to in the last few weeks have been excited when they get a, a potential borrower on the phone who's buying a half a million dollar house. And then like the next thing they hear is, well, I'm putting 350 down. So I, and, and like that's a, that's a real thing in this market right now. The, the loan sizes are, are, are smaller. And, um, because that, that tale of two buyers. It is because, and that's how, that's why, frankly, the housing market hasn't imploded on itself, right? Is because we have this tremendous amount of equity built up and you're like, yeah, it's a bummer that I have to pay a 7% rate, but I'm putting 50% down. So I'm taking out a much slower, lower loan. It is, as I mentioned, the first time buyers and the buyers with more moderate incomes that are really being left out kind of again, and we, you know, seeing this widening disparity in access to um, homeownership and the ability to accumulate wealth. Yeah. And so like, while the Federal Reserve is not meant to be a political entity, they are appointees. And um, the, uh, I think like to date, the Fed governors have been moving in, moving in unison and in in agreement with all of the hikes. And one of the things that I'm like, paying attention to as we start to hear different like rhetoric come out of different governors, it's not necessarily aligned um, is that this 
Fed induced job loss recession, as Logan Motoshami likes to uh, likes to coin, um, comes to fruition. Like, will we start seeing really different stances from from different um, from different Fed governors, and uh, and what will that what will that do to the market when people aren't when Fed governors aren't voting in unison or aren't in complete agreement about the 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 rate rate hike path. Yeah. Yeah. You're so right because it feels like, okay, so you remember last year at this time, the whole transitory debacle, right? So there was, right. And so I feel like there was like, I I can imagine them all sitting down in a room and saying, okay, guys, we all have to be on the same page here because we saw what happens when we're saying different things. We saw what happens in the stock market. So there has been so much uniformity in what's been coming out of the mouths and the, you know, press releases from the the local governors and um or the regional governors and i think that um i think that's still the goal uh you can you in fact you can tell when the cpi um dropped and you know rates the uh, mortgage rates came down and the the yield on the 10 year treasury came down almost all a lot of the regional um federal reserve governors came out to to say we're still staying the course like we 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 don't want basically we don't want the stock market to take this news and just run with it, expecting that, you know, sort of we're done with, with our movement here on rates. And, and I think that uniformity has actually been good to keep things more stable. I, I think you're right. If there's a point at which we start hearing conflicting messages out of the different members of the FOMC, I think that's going to, uh, I think that's going to be a, a bad thing. I think the consistency in messaging has been almost as important as the actual policy actions themselves by the Fed. Right. And so if that breaks up, if that breaks apart, I think um, I think the situation could get more complicated. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to watch. I mean, I know it's gonna um, you know c- create a lot of uh, Twitter buzz amongst the the Fed the Fed haters out there, and then see how effective they can be in um, in this uniformity. If that's if Twitter still if around. Twitter's still around, yeah. <laughs> so <let's see. laughs> We're recording this on Tuesday, so let's see. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right? Who knows? Yeah. So, so Lisa, I um. Most of my guests, when I ask them to do some crystal ball gazing, um, uh, abruptly end the episode and run the other direction. <laughs> so, but I, but I think some some early twenty twenty three forecasts might might actually um, be fitting here. So, like as you as you think about what you're expecting in the for the housing market in terms of home prices or, or volume or other other industry dynamics for twenty twenty three, what are you what are you preparing for? What are your members anticipating? Give us give us some views. Yeah, yeah. So I think that um, I think we are um, definitely going to see home sales. Sort of, I won't I won't necessarily say volume because I haven't actually done the math yet. But I definitely think transactions are going to be down next year compared to where we were this year. We're down uh, in the Mid Atlantic. We're going to be down about nineteen percent in terms of transactions compared to twenty twenty one. But twenty twenty one was such a busy year. Um, that's a little bit of a, it's a, a, it doesn't really say exactly what's going on, but, but we're going to see home sales still down next year compared to where we are this year. And there's two main reasons for that. The first is we had a lot of buyers push who were thinking maybe they were going to buy in 2023. They just pushed it up, right? You saw rates at 2.75%. You're like, let's do it now. Um, and so we sort of saw a lot of those sales already happen. And then the second thing, and this is going to plague the market or be a constraint on the market really for the next five, seven years, is there's still not going to be anything to buy. And so a lack of inventory, low inventory is still going to be um, a constraint on sales and keeping 
the number of sales low, even though demand is, I think is going to, you know, rebound in, in 2023. Because of that low inventory, I do expect, um, in most places, prices are going to be either stable or rising slightly in 2023. Um, the places that maybe prices are going to fall, uh, are places like we talked about earlier, where there's big run-ups, uh, places that really boomed during the pandemic and are now resettling back into more typical conditions. Um, but uh, overall, I think in 2022, sales down a bit, prices flat, and um, uh, and uh, inventory still relatively low compared to where we'd like to be in a in a balanced market. 2022 was kind of a tale of two markets in like first half and second half. So when you think about like if you're gonna uh, like if you're modeling out quarters in 2023, are you you know kind of taking production volume from like second half 2022 and expecting a market at least in first half of 23 that re- resembles what we saw this fall? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's the way that I would think about it. And I will I will say again, kind of picking up on a theme we were just talking about is, um, you know, there's um there's math right involved. There's spreadsheets. There's numbers. But there's also some art to this forecasting, right? And it, particularly in a time where you can't use the last few years of data to tell you anything about what's going to happen this year. And so I think that um, we all have to be a little humble. Um, but I do think sort of taking the latter half of this year, kind of looking ahead to the first half and making some predictions about where um, kind of the longer term trend is where the fundamentals in terms of economics and demographics would put the housing market in the second half of the year. Um, and, and then, yeah, so the, the 2023 number is actually going to be a tale of two markets as well, or, you know, two markets, yeah. the first half and the second half. I hopefully, think. Yeah. hopefully we see interest rates come back to earth in fall 2023. I, I think so. Yeah. I think not, you know, I, for a while I was using kind of the return to normal, but I don't even think that's right anymore. Cause I'm not sure what people think of when they hear normal. I think it's just a, a return to a different. <laughs> yeah. I think like there's. You know, housing professionals who haven't seen a full cycle yet, who still can't wait for rates to be back at three percent. Rates at three percent are not a good thing for us. That that means we're back in like pandemic lockdown with World War Three starting, and we're back in like this home price appreciation craziness that we saw the last two years, which is great for I mean, not great for World War Three and the pandemic, but great <laughs> for home sales um, uh, for a period. But it's not consistent, and like I think. The housing industry at its best is an industry that has liquidity for buyers and sellers and operates in a predictable fashion. And um, homes aren't meant to be uh, in like true investments or lottery tickets. They're meant to be shelter that's like accessible and um, relatively predictable. Right. No, absolutely. And I think the the healthiest housing market would have us in a market where um, the cost of buying a home was rising at roughly the cost of incomes rising, right? Because, and you want that as a homeowner as well. I mean, you want to see the value of your home rise, but you need to make sure there's buyers, you know, coming up behind you that can actually afford to buy that home at that price. I also think that we have gotten used to, you mentioned sort of, um, you know, sort of seeing your house as an investment or like, um, and I think we've gotten... There's like, it's, uh, you know, how like they, I think I might have mentioned this, you know, you don't, um, you don't check your 401k every day, but people have gotten in the habit of checking the value of their estimate or whatever, the value of their home. 
don't do it. <laughs> don't do it unless you're planning to sell. There's really no reason to do it. And I think that um, I think hopefully we'll get back into that more sort of typical opinion about like why you're buying a house. And I agree with 100 percent with you is that, you know, we want an efficient marketplace with uh, the ability of buyers and sellers to you know transact their home and to uh, for for them to accumulate wealth and to have a place to live. We all need a place to live. Right. Yeah. Interesting. We, um, uh, a little b- behind the scenes, we had a planning call this morning for content for our 2023 gathering of Eagles. And, um, that's our real estate brokerage event that we do every summer that, that real trends has hosted for 30 years. And, um, we always do a session called deal makers and it's like a registration. It's like a separate registration, like sidecar event, at gathering of Eagles about M and a in the real estate brokerage market, <laughs> a market that's like, <laughs> kind of grinded to a halt the last six months. And a lot of the big national buyers are are are, are no longer buying. And one of the things, the trends that, that Steve brought up, Steve Murray brought up, was that while like the national buyers are kind of on the sidelines, like we're expecting to see more um, like local market, like broker to broker M&A in, in 2023. And uh, I'm curious, like... Um, with the like the brokers that you have access to through Bright, like are you seeing any trends in terms of like their their business strategy in terms of consolidation or expansion or core services? Like what what are you seeing in the in the the Mid Atlantic region? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think that you know, I think the biggest thing, and I hadn't heard that that um, scenario that you just sort of described. That's really interesting. But I mean, I think the trend has been for you know uh, firms to be able to offer kind of end to end services in terms of being able to be part of every piece of the transaction, right? And I think that increasingly, if there's ways to partner with those kinds of other entities or, you know, sort of combine with them, I think there's been more and more opportunities. And then I also think back to what you were talking about, we're seeing that more brokerages are looking for ways to use technology and to use um, innovation to uh, make the process more efficient and to be able to connect better with their consumers. Um, And, you know, that seems like that's, you know, that's going to continue as we head into the, into 2023. Yeah. Yeah. I think the efficiencies is key. And there's also like, I, I know the DC market is always a market that attracts like people moving from all over the country because of like the, the, the political turnstile and like just opportunity in the market. And I'd imagine any market that has a high population inflow like has to have like a brokerages that are like tech enabled and that can serve a home buyer in California who's moving to the district at some point in time. Yeah. No, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. And th- there is a lot of movement. There is, and there, there's a lot of people who like kind of, um, you know, expect the process to be run pretty smoothly as well. And, um, you know, it's interesting the DC area market. I, you know, I had been watching our markets and I kind of expected the DC market to be the most resilient during these rate increases. I kind of thought, um, you know, higher priced market, sure, but also people who might be, you know, in a better position to withstand the higher mortgage rates. But we've actually seen price growth, um, really fall in the DC market, whereas it's been a little bit more stable in the Baltimore and, uh, and Philly markets. And I think that's just a testament to the fact that, and you brought this up is that, you know, we can't sustain the home price growth that we've been seeing over, uh, over the last few years. I mean, even in a high income area, like the Washington area, there's still a seal, uh, you know, a ceiling on where prices can go. And in some markets, I think we've gotten close to hitting that ceiling here, uh, in our area. 
So as you look out in the forecast period and like think about like transactions being slightly down in 2023, home prices relatively flat. What are the what risks do you see to that that forecast and, and that model? Like, what do you um? Are there economic indicators or anything happening in the uh, the housing market that would make you change your your thesis for 2023? Well, it always comes back to me. It comes back to the fundamentals behind supply and demand in the market. And so I always think about, because I, look, I don't, I do not want to be the one standing up in front of a crowd saying the market's going to be fine. And then the next day having like a Lehman Brothers situation, yep. right? Like, right. I do not want to be that person. So I spent a lot of time thinking about what am I missing or what could be a factor that could cause the housing market to kind of, to for me to be wrong on the downside, basically, you know, it's, I don't mind if I'm wrong and it's actually much better than, than, than what I thought it was. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I feel like, you know, you have to think about, is there anything that would bring a lot of new inventory onto the market in the, in the near term? And I just think, you know, we, we, uh, we've seen that uh, foreclosures have ticked up, but similar to the base effects we talked about before, uh, year over year, uh, foreclosures have doubled, but from basically zero. So, uh, we're not, but gonna- we got rid of forbearance. That's right? like the thing that like everyone has to remember the, like, the the year over year measures just don't work right now. <laughs> Lenders were not allowed to foreclose last year at this time. Yeah, but it's, it's like it's a great opportunity to remind people about math, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, nobody likes math though. So, so the, but they like headlines, and the headlines are scary. But I just don't see any um, big increase in inventory related to foreclosures or short sales. The the home builders, man, are they they are having a tough time and um, home builder sentiments, what fallen for 11 months yeah. in a row or something. So I don't see a big flood of new construction coming onto the market. So I think supply is still going to be low. I think, um, I think the challenge might be as we go forward, if, you know, we've seen people taking more money out of their homes because they're tapping HELOCs now as they're trying to find uh, money. I mean, I feel like there's a potential there, but overall the demographic and economic fundamentals stay, stay pretty sound. You know, I mean, the risk of a recession is always out there. Um, and, um, and if there is one, I don't think it's going to be a big, uh, it'd be really hard to think of it as a big labor market recession since we still have such a tight labor market. Um, so I don't know. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think, you know, you don't want to think of worst case scenarios, but you know, uh, nothing is like front front of mind right now in terms of what could bring us down. So, I'll welcome any home builders to contest me on this. I know home building has had a, um, you know, a tough run. And uh, like, we look back at the last cycle, like they did not fare well, but are home builders, like the most dramatic industry participants to, to housing market data. Like, I feel like real estate brokers, like stay the course, like we're just staying the course. We're going to keep going. We know times are tough. Mortgage lenders are somewhere in between, but like home builders, like freak out in terms of optimism and pessimism on every single economic read. Am I, is that just me? Or <laughs> Okay. Look, I am not going to start a war among uh, people in the housing industry. Uh, what I will say though, is uh, just from what I hear from builders is I feel like um, home builders learned a lot yeah. during the great recession and they more than any other segment. I, well, obviously the financial sector, but, but they, uh, they learned a lot. And so for example, we're seeing them take more measured approaches to price cuts. Uh, they're taking more, uh, they're being much more conservative and pulling back on building because they got caught up in overbuilding last time. Um, so, and then frankly, the industry consolidated quite a bit. So you've got a lot of big players and a a lot uh, and fewer sort of local, 
uh, mom and pop builders on the ground who are um, reacting to like, like you say, this national news when really maybe what they should be paying attention to is what's going on um, at the local level. But I, I will not, I'm not going to comment. <laughs> I know what you're. I know what you're saying, though, and they yeah, and they're seeing they're they're being hit by all by all fronts. It's not just labor and interest rates like so many other industries. It's also can I get you know garage doors from China? You know, can I you know can I deal? I have to deal with local regulations, which doesn't want any more housing in my neighbor. So they have a lot of things that go into that you know sort of mentality about. Yeah, no, I mean, and as we talk about this, like maybe home builders are, are a better bellwether than we've given them credit for in the past. Because if I rewind to 10, 11 months ago, I'm at the the national home builders show in Orlando and um, all the issues that we're like well aware of across the industry. Now home builders were like pretty aware of 10 or 11 months ago. And the pessimism was pessimism was high. I, I, I kind of joke about the, the dramatic nature, but like, you're right. Like home builders have learned a lot and they are not going to make mistakes. And I think that's where like you see other participants in the housing industry who are t- still willing to take some risk and um, home builders are, are not in that category. Yeah. Well, it's interesting though. And again, not to harp on the home builders. I also, you had mentioned innovation and we've mentioned innovation and technology a few times. And I think that uh, you, it's happening across the housing sector. I think there's so much more potential though, within the home building industry to adopt innovative way. We've been building homes basically the same way for a hundred years, right? And I feel like there's, um, I'm not sure what the obstacles are, but it feels like that would be the next thing to break open kind of the trajectory of the housing market is figuring out how to really change it. Yeah. There's some cool players. I'm pretty sure one, I think it's called Icon who does like the 3D like cement printing of homes. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'll, I'll do a plug right now. If anybody wants to do a 3D printed conference room in my office, um, you can come and demo your technology. uh, Yeah. Well here in Virginia, we, they just, they just built, they built two 3D homes, one in Richmond and one in Hampton Roads area. Um, and in Hampton Roads, it's being built through Habitat for Humanity. So it's actually being built through a nonprofit. And look, I, it's sexy. It's like cool, like 3D printing. And I'm not sure that's like going to be done at scale anytime soon, but there's got to be less, there's got to be things we're learning about that to put into the production process, right? To make it easier. Yeah. Yeah. And like the, um, you know, the word modular gets the wrong word, but like the wrong framing, but like there's like modular construction, construction tactics where like parts of the home are being like developed offsite and then like shipped and constructed on site versus like the, the pure stick built. No, right. You can, and you, you beat the weather. And, uh, we had, uh, I, I grew up in Vermont and we actually, uh, the builder built the first level. They built the second level offsite and they brought it on a big crane. I remember being 12 years old, watching that being, um, set down on top of the house. There's, there's definitely different ways to, to do it. All right, folks, only on housing news do you get construction and econ data and mortgage lending and tech innovation and real estate brokerages and the background on multiple listing services. <laughs> Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed the conversation with you, far reaching across the housing economy. Yeah, it was really fun. I appreciate it. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the housing news podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.